Good afternoon. Good afternoon. My name is Bharat Gopalaswamy, and I direct the South Asia Center. On behalf of our leadership and management and my colleagues, um, I'm very pleased to welcome you all to this event today. Um, there are many familiar faces in, in the audience, Ambassador Saeed Jawad, uh, Chris Haig, my colleague who have been assisting us uh, on this important initiative that is very um, critical and of paramount importance, including our leadership on Afghanistan. Um, under President Ashraf Ghani, the reforms are increasingly important for not only the local and national government of Afghanistan and its people, but also for the stability of its regional partners. In the recent Brussels conference held last month, President Ghani presented a multitude of comprehensive reforms that focused on the development and implementation of projects to bolster infrastructure, technology, and human capital in the country. In his speech, President Ghani expounded on the country's groundbreaking agreements on energy and infrastructure and the importance of regional cooperation. President Ghani stated, economically, Afghanistan is once again becoming integrated with Central Asia and through it to Europe. The reform agenda seeks to revive a stagnant economy and unite the Afghan people with a new vision against corruption. Today, the Council's um, South Asia Center is fortunate to welcome back home, mark my words, welcome back home, President Ashraf Ghani, um, Special Envoy Dr. Kayumi, to speak further on Afghanistan's re reform agenda and also the chairman of Central Asia Caucasus Institute at J. Johns Hopkins and Silk Road Studies Program, Dr. Frederick Starr. I'm thrilled to play, I'm thrilled that our, our center has been fortunate to play a role in this conversation. My colleague Chris Haig and I have been working the last few months. We've been to Afghanistan and we want to, um, we want to play a more active role in this conversation and for, and we, be, we believe that this well, this initiative and this event today is one such, uh, is, an, is an integral, is a stepping stone to that, um, to that, to the overall vision of our institute. Uh, without waste, uh, without further ado, I welcome both Dr. Kayumi and Dr. Starr to the stage. It will work as follows. Dr. Kayumi will lead the conversation and give us remarks, and he will join a moderated conversation by Dr. Starr. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to see you all here. It's an honor for me to be here and to introduce my colleague and, and friend, Mohammed Kayumi. Uh, this is a man of parts. Uh, he was born in Kabul or near Kabul, went to the American University in Beirut as an undergraduate. Then he and ended up at the University of Cincinnati for many years and collected a, a massive degrees that should intimidate anyone, four of them. Uh, the, the culmination was a degree in electrical engineering in which field he's truly an expert, but he also did two other engineering uh, MAs and an MBA. Uh, he stayed in Cincinnati for a number of years and engaged in business. <laughs> Uh, that it involved uh, Saudi Arabia and the, and, the, and the Gulf, but then very quickly was picked up by universities as a good manager. And he ended up 
president of San Jose State, and before that, California State University, East Bay. Uh, so it was from, from the uh, San Jose post that he was plucked out by his friend Ashraf Ghani to, be, to head the entire uh, field of, of technology and, and, and communications in, in Afghanistan. It's an immense area, and he's been very, very hard at this now for, for a, a good while with immense prospects uh, and, and challenging ones and difficult ones before him. And therefore, it's a pleasure to hear from him on what he is doing and what he sees as his prospects for success. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Starr. Good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with all of you. And it's, uh, again, I want to thank the Atlantic Council. It's always a, a pleasure to be here I, uh, and uh, to associate with uh, Atlantic Council. I look at it as a deep privilege. Uh, I'll uh, talk a little bit about uh, uh, the role that I do in Afghanistan, some of the things that has happened in the last year to create a context, and, and I'll be, be brief there so we can start the conversation and uh, have a bit more of a uh, dialogue and questions and answers. I think that's how it could be more, uh, it will really get, get you some of the issues that you have an interest. Uh, first of all, in terms of my role, the title is a mouthful. It's a, 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 the chief advisor for infrastructure, human capital, technology, and, uh, and uh, regional connectivity. And basically, it's involved in many of the aspects that are the underlying elements to build a more sustainable economy uh, for the country. I think if I go back to over a year and a half, two years ago, uh, uh, I think uh, 2015 for the current regime was the year of survival, a year that uh, many people did not know. Uh, and the, the expectation was, can the regime really survive, can the, uh, given that for the first time, the Afghan forces, armed forces, had to take the, uh, the security in their hand. It's true that we still have the uh, resolute forces for the, uh, for the uh, supply, uh, logistics support and other support and training. But in terms of uh, doing the fighting, it's the Afghan uh, soldiers. And I think our, uh, the gallantry that our forces have shown, despite the fact that on the daily basis, we're losing uh, uh, tens of our uh, young uh, men and some uh, women in that area. Uh, we still have uh, a long number of people who are enlisting, and it's all in 100% voluntary uh, force. Uh, so I think uh, President Obama's very courageous decision to, you know, to basically revise what he had promised as part of his election campaign over eight years ago to be able to bring all of the forces back and uh, you know, recognizing the importance of having the, so, uh, the forces there, it was a, a very a major focal point, a major uh, element. And then beyond uh, that, I think if we look at what has really happened in the whole uh, you know, transformation of, the, uh, of, of uh, when we look at the aspects of uh, uh, terrorism in that part of the world, basically, uh, we look at the fifth phase of a uh, fifth generation of terrorism, so the whole uh, ecology, pathology, and morphology of terrorism has really changed so much. Uh, I think in the last year with the, uh, with the two conferences, two very foundational conferences, uh, the NATO conference in, 
in Warsaw, which was the which was a resounding uh, support for Afghanistan, especially in the support for the uh, militarily for the next four years, and also the Brussels conference raising uh, $15.2 billion was a very strong uh, support for the directions that the country is uh, really going. And part of what we are hoping to do is to see how we can really use that one so the country can move in a, uh, in a forward direction. Just a few quick elements in terms of what has happened in the past year. We've been able to put a lot of effort on some of the foundational areas. Uh, for example, the energy area, uh, we have uh, we started uh, more uh, irrigation and hydropower uh, dams than we had done in the prior uh, 250 years. Uh, we did more. Uh, we finished the first dam in 40 years, the Salma Dam, on the western part of the country. Uh, the uh, generation capacity that we have uh, that we have been in different stages of building this year uh, was more it was twice what had started back since you know, for the prior uh, 60 years. We had been able to uh, attract private uh, investment in the energy area. Uh, if you look at all of the in the last six months, we attracted uh, over 800 million. In the, in the energy areas. Uh, so I think those are some of the key elements of what has really happened. Now with the $15.2 billion of, uh, of the pledges that has happened, we're trying to see how we can uh, try to leverage that with private sector investment and put far more emphasis there and trying to set up the issues of the, uh, of the next four years as a fundamental plan that could be very transformative and move us more towards what uh, President Ghani spoke at his uh, London conference two years ago in moving the country towards self-reliance. So with that, why don't I stop here and then uh, we'll, be, we'll try to have more of a, uh, more of a conversational uh, uh, in questions and answers, which I think it might be much more helpful. Security. Yes. Everyone's yeah. reading our papers. Sure. And seeing our television news, which is dominated by that issue. Sure. Uh, security is a major part, and not only, I think, not only in Afghanistan, but unfortunately, we're living in a world that appears to be less secure than at least what we know it. Uh, but specifically, when we talk about Afghanistan, where not only we're fighting uh, the Taliban, but, you know, eight to nine additional international terrorist groups, where the country uh, is fighting uh, 15 to 20, uh, 20 fronts every night. Uh, and yet, uh, uh, none of those groups have been able to hold any area for any period. Uh, I think it shows that the country is, you know, the people are resolute and, re and really been able to, be, uh, to show that. And we are paying a tremendous price for it on a daily basis, losing several, uh, you know, uh, tens of your, uh, uh, you know, best and brightest in terms of our armed forces and whatever, as well as the civilian casualties is not easy. Uh, that has been hard. But part of it is that when you have discussions in the, you know, around the country, when we have had people from all over the country, unfortunately, in a way, it has uh, shows the adaptive nature of human beings that for people that has be uh, been accepted as, you know, like uh, fighting traffic or um, the weather. I mean, uh, they see that one as an issue that we have to deal with. It's a concern. It is something that, uh, you know, adds costs, it adds uh, complications. But that's not something that dis should dissuade us 
on a res uh, resolution on how to move forward and how to look at thing, uh, how to look at our programs and and plans for the future. Also recognizing that uh, if we are able to make major uh, improvements on the economy and the well-being of the people as a whole, that will have a direct impact on the security of the country as well. Especially when you have a large number of your youth who would not have jobs. You know, that usually is the worst, the most potent negative force in any society. And for us having that, especially in an environment where we're adding more than 400,000 people to the workforce every year, our economy should move uh, up, uh, at 7% just to stay at par. So with all of these, uh, I think uh, that's how we have been looking at securities, but recognizing that it's a major issue, major challenge, but not in any way it should be something to dissuade us on how we can move forward. If I can uh, pursue this one more question. The, uh, you mentioned the existence of non-Afghan yes. uh, uh, forces, fighters, on your, on your territory, and the implication is that uh, could be that these are, yes, you have to deal with them, but they're partly the responsibility of the international community. Is Afghanistan going to be asking for support in that activity? I think, you know, the support that, the, uh, that uh, you know, many Western countries, and of course with the U.S. being the foundational partner that they have provided has been tremendous. And that's uh, what, you know, we have to look at it, that that's an international, uh, you know, the challenge that we have to deal with. I don't think we really know what to do with those individuals, assuming that we have some of these terrorists from many of the, you know, whether it's from, from the Chechens to the Olgors uh, to many others, what should be done with them? How could you really send them back to their own home country? What kind of a court you need to use? I think those are some challenges I mean, that, uh, that uh, we as, uh, in the world as a whole has not really addressed them. And this is something that needs to be addressed. And it happens so unf uh, unfortunately that we are in that zero ground where all of this is really happening. Well, turning to the economy for a yeah. moment, uh, we've had decade and a half of, of gener intensive generation of projects. Yes. You can say that Afghanistan has been a victim of projectitis. Yes. And, and uh, obviously all desirable ends aren't compatible. Uh, tell me the process by which you identify the things that really must be done and the ones that must be done first. I think if I look at the prior uh, 13 years, if there was one uh, plan on how to make the country a purely consumptive society, they were very, very uh, effective. You know, basically a country that, uh, you know, that added hardly anything in terms of its uh, uh, generative ability or, con uh, you know, a country where, you know, when this uh, administration took over, our, uh, our imports were 21 times as big as exports. You know, a country of 30 million people with having an export uh, dollar of about $440 million, it's kind of hard to keep 30 million population in, you know, in uh, employment. Uh, a country where uh, traditionally was uh, producing, uh, was a uh, food exporting country, importing three to, two to, uh, three to four billion dollars worth of food. I mean, a country where we ended up having the dubious right. distinction of where the food is going from the cities to the countryside. A country with having you know, such a tremendous potential for, 
for energy sources, you know, 23,000 megawatts of hydro, over 70,000 on wind, 220,000 on solar and plus other sources, and plus over a billion tons of coal would be important 76% of its energy uh, uh, for elect uh, electricity. So I think uh, this is basically what had happened, that we had Project Titus, where a lot of the projects were happening without anybody really looking at the results of those projects. So that's why, when, you know, when uh, we uh, said that uh, despite all of the projects, it was a very nice input-based system with no focus on the output. Uh, it was very much based on consumptive rather than really productive element of the society. Uh, you know, for instance, there were several billion dollars spent on capacity building. And yet, when many of those experts from the, uh, from the, from the donor agencies left and they had almost created shadow ministries within ministries, when they were away, there was hardly any capacity in the ministries. Uh, once I facetiously told one of the uh, donor agencies, I said, you know, capacity building in Afghanistan really meant uh, it was basically a conspiracy to make sure that no capacity would be built. I don't think that was the intention, but and, uh, the results uh, really, uh, you know, uh, gave us uh, that uh, setup. So, and that's uh, because of the fact that when the, you know, most of the economy of the prior 13 years was based on servicing all of the uh, armed forces and all of the international organizations that were there, they were there. And that's why in 2014, when many of them left, the economy took such a nosedive. Basically, you know, more than, uh, uh, I think, half a million jobs were lost because of that. Uh, first time that I took a tour of the, uh, an airplane, uh, uh, a helicopter tour of the city of Kabul, a place that I was born and raised, when I came back and the president asked me, uh, what do you think? I said, you know, my first comment would be, is if you are in the helicopter ride, your first question would be, is where do people work? Because you don't see, I mean, it basically looks like a bedroom community, the whole city of close to five million, four and a half million people. There's not any area that you can determine where people look because all of the work was the service that you're providing for most of the armed forces, which had created the economic activity. And when that went down, the whole economy went down. So the idea for now is how we can really build the economy around these four key areas. What do we need to grow? What do we need to extract? What do we need to trade? And what do we need to manufacture? So it's going to be a longer term process, but we can build something that will be sustainable. It will be based on uh, production base. And then uh, in the long term, it would uh, lead to self-reliance for the country as a whole. You, you used the word sustainable just yeah. then. And, and I, in, again, in the uh, press uh, these days, uh, the dominant story, the dominant narrative on Afghanistan has been the tensions between President Ghani and Dr. Abdullah. Yeah. Is this sustainable? <laughs> well, I think I would like to, any country to try having their two uh, you know, political opponents who, fought, uh, who, uh, who really struggled and uh, campaigned against each other, and then try to be part of the same government and see if it sustains for two years. So that will be the first thing to start Are you with. implying okay. a... Comparison? <laughs> no, I don't want to. People can make their own comparisons. Okay. No, so, uh, you know, the, the part is, uh, you know, I go back to a comment that uh, 
uh, I still remember my elementary school teacher right, back in, you know, I was in the fifth grade, and his comment was that the fact that two people do not look identical, how do you expect them to think identical? Uh, so I, I think some, uh, some of that difference is, uh, is uh, healthy, it's uh, good, and it's usually, you know, the, what they say that uh, the truth really comes out when uh, friends argue. Uh, so there are differences of opinion. I think that should be, uh, that to me, that's normal. Uh, because if uh, there is no differences of opinion, then one side is not thinking. Uh, I think uh, the fact that the two, and both of them interested in moving the country forward, have different views and how, how that should be done. Uh, I think that should be really look at as the virtues of democracy, there's a chaotic system but at the end, it's far better than any other system that anybody else has come up with. So I look at it in that kind of a context. Thank you. The, the floor is open to comments and questions. Please be concise, sir. Yes, my name is Joel Hetker. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Iran, 70 to 72. I went overland to Afghanistan, 71, 72. <laughs> So anyway, uh, when I was there uh, in Herat and Kabul and Kandahar and Missouri yeah. Sharif, it was the economy, you know, there were Afghan shirts, Pirahani Afghani, which were cotton and they were sold to all the tourists. There were dried fruit and nuts and um, caracal, of course, Persian lamb, very popular, the hats and even coats, which were very expensive. Some were like, even then at that time were 800 to $1,000. Now, it's been said about the legacy of Zahir Shah Abdali that he ruled from 33 to 73, 40 years. Sure. And if there had been one factory a year, they would have had 40 factories, but they didn't. Yes. So his legacy is sort of dubious. Uh, they kept control of the country. There were no wars particularly at that time, but the economy did not develop as much as it could have. There's a book called So It Was in Kandahar, and I've forgotten the woman who wrote the book. Maybe you've read it. It was an AID, a co contractor with Morris and Knudsen on the Helmand River Project. Yes, that's an excellent book, even though it was written many years ago. She was there in 56. She didn't write the book until maybe 71. Yeah. It was quite a few years later. So I'd like to recommend that, you know, insights into our aid projects. The dam that you mentioned was built by the, by the Indians. Yes. It's not on the Harry Road, but it, it's, it's near a, there, it's right? It's on Harry Road, yeah. Oh, it is on Harry Road. Yes. All right, well, I guess my, this is more of a comment than a question. What, what, what do you see as the exit strategy for the United States? I mean, we've been there 15 years, and uh, well, it's never going to be 100% perfect. But at some point, this is just my opinion, you, you have to say, you know, reduce it, and um, they'll have to take control of it themselves. Just my opinion. Uh, you're absolutely right. I think you know one of the other uh, dimensions that we need to keep in mind, and that is the you know the, the new in a way it's the the dimension of the post 9/11 world that we're living in, uh, and the impact of uh, um, of international terrorist organizations, which uh, you know if, you know if you look at it from the all of the illicit activities and underground economies from the drugs to people smuggling to all the way to terrorism. It's a $1.7 trillion economy globally, which is, I mean, if there is one thing that those groups have done a, an effective job, they have set themselves very much like in like uh, the internet, which is kind of, you know, which uh, has made them quite effective. So that particular issue is an existential issue that the world, the whole world is really facing. I mean, look at all of the kind of things that 
uh, that Daesh has been doing, in, you know, not only in Iraq and Syria, but also in Afghanistan. It was about a week, 10 days ago, that they killed, about 30 people got killed in the, in the western province of Gore. These were just civilian, you know, basically peasants and whatever that had nothing to do with any group. And they were just killed because they just wanted to kill people. So, <coughs> so I think that particular phenomena is something that is beyond Afghanistan in terms of how it should be addressed because that, you know, uh, that international terror has, is our groups, uh, whether it had been impacting Paris or Brussels or, uh, uh, or uh, you know, Delhi or many other parts of the world. So if you take that piece out, you know, certainly I've, you know, the things that this government has been trying to do is uh, how we can really set up some basic elements of the production. I mean, recognizing that agriculture is going to be a major element for Afghanistan. Recognizing uh, that that will be something that will produce a large part of the, the workforce. Then looking at uh, uh, construction, which will be uh, a country that has over about 30 million population, having 990,000 houses, which means one for 30, which you think it's a major deficit. But the good thing about construction is that it can, uh, it can really impact 40 to 50 different industries. Uh, looking at uh, our extractive industries, uh, that although a few years ago the euphoria was that we're going to be all uh, you know rich and famous, which did not happen. Uh, or, but also looking at the location of the country in terms of uh, uh, you know the three major trade areas: the transfer of energy from Central Asia to South Asia, uh, the transfer of goods, east and west, being as part of the uh, one belt one road uh, path as well as north-south, and the transfer of data. I think these three elements per se, if we are able to put our, you know, if we work uh, and look at that strategically, uh, it's not out of the question that the country can raise uh, north of uh, $3 billion annually to be able to, uh, as a revenue for, these, uh, for the trade of these three key commodities. So this is where we see the country, that how we can really build some of these basic infrastructure that would really move the economy in a sustainable way, where uh, you know Afghanistan should not be a burden, and Afghanistan has, doesn't take any joy in being a burden to the world financially. And uh, and be and also, I mean, one of the com my comments to the donors have always been that the gov the government has to feel very uh, a deep sense of fiduciary responsibility that all of those countries have taken their hard-earned tax dollars that they could spend on their own domestic products and they're spending it in Afghanistan. We have a responsibility to make sure that that's used in a most effective way, but also in a way that would really move us towards self-reliance. Yes, please. <coughs> uh, I'm Gail Maddox. I'm on the faculty at the US Naval Academy okay. and a fellow this year at the uh, Woodrow Wilson Center. Um, and my question has to do with all the refugees. Sure. Um, while you're talking about all the great things that hopefully can come out of some of the initiatives, the fact of the matter is that so many people that came a few years ago are leaving. I don't know if they're, the, they're not the same people, I understand, but still the, the trend is out of the country. How are you going to address that, and okay. what, uh, what's, at the, what's at the roots of that? Okay. And where are they going to go? Okay. 
I think we are talking about different groups, and, I talk, and I'll try to explain a little bit about the groups that has been the migrating groups basically to Europe, has been groups that are more educated, more uh, uh, you know, financially in the, you know, I'll say the middle class level or so, because, and the reason I say that is many of the, uh, you know, if you're trying to send a family of four to, ex to go to, uh, to anywhere in Europe, uh, the cost of that is fifteen to twenty thousand dollars a person. So it means that it will be a family whether they sold uh, all of their belongings to borrowing or whatever they they were at the financial level that they were able to pull together forty to sixty thousand uh, dollars to do that one. So that puts them in a uh, that financial level. But you know there we have to see both the pull factors and the push factors. The pull factors would be you know the uh, looking at the experience of many uh, Afghan re refugees who went after the, Sovi uh, after the Soviet invasion and how successful they have been in Germany and many other parts of Europe financially. So I think that's, that has been part of that lore. And also, uh, you know, recognizing that if somebody can make it from Afghanistan all the way to, uh, to Europe or even to... Uh, to um, Turkey or uh, Greece, there must be some international groups from you know the uh, corruption within our, our within our security forces to all of the countries on how these individuals make it all the way to to uh, uh, whether it's to Europe or whether it's only to Turkey, and that's something that has to be looked at internationally because these are the same groups as uh, as I commented back that part of the $1.7 trillion illicit economy. And we have, they have found that in many cases, uh, smuggling people is even more financially, uh, financially um, uh, rewarding than uh, drunks. So, so that's, that's one piece of the group. And yes, we've had people. Uh, I think one of the things that, you know, we'll see a change because people recognizing that Europe is not as hospitable to Afghans when it was, uh, you know, when we were talking about, uh, you know, after the Soviet invasion, and Europe is in quite a different place as it was. So that's one group of refugees. I said the more the more educated, well-off groups that have gone. But if you look at it today, I mean, on the daily basis, Afghanistan is getting by roughly thousand to fifteen hundred from Iran that are coming back. And from Pakistan, we're getting somewhere between 4,500 to 6,500 daily that are coming back. <laughs> Part of the plans that we have, and I think if, we allow, if we, uh, those individuals come more to the, to the cities just for jobs and just for the subsistence, it's going to be a major draw on the cities that are already overtaxed in terms of uh, services and whatever. Part of the ideas that we're, tra that we're uh, trying to look at is you know, going back to the comment that I made about some of these irrigation dams that we're trying to build in many areas, if you look at that irrigation dam as like the factory, that every one of these irrigation dams you know, can irrigate so many <coughs> hectares of land in, Percy, uh, for, uh, in Afghanistan, we look at two hectares to be enough for a subsistence of a family of five to seven people. Uh, so if we each one of these dams areas, how many, it can really, uh, how many people could really come to that particular uh, area? What will be, how can we really look at the housing area and how can we end up putting all of the other aspects to make 
for the value chain so the products can get to the cities and you know, they can get a livelihood. That's you know, the way that we're hoping to do. Uh, one of the, you know, the plans is that you know, we have about two to two and a half million people in Pakistan, uh, in Pakistan and similar numbers in Iran. And somehow the government, that, those are you know, Afghan citizens, uh, many of them uh, are coming back. Uh, and um, we need to find ways that they can have gainful employment and we need to find ways that the country can absorb them. So I think the net would be that we might be losing a few people, maybe in tens that might be going to Europe, but on a daily basis we're getting over 7,000 to 8,000 coming back. Uh, Dr. Kayumi, one, one of the reasons your appointment was greeted with great enthusiasm is that you are a genuine expert on transport of energy. And energy transport in, in Afghanistan means oil and gas. It also means uh, electricity and, and so forth. And, and uh, I'm, I know that very real things are happening there, not just on paper, but in reality. My question has to do with the security of these new arrangements. I remember back, we all remember back in the 90s when, when the Taliban actually came to Washington and then they went on to Houston to talk with uh, UNICAL about uh, the ta then tappy, TAP pipeline project. Yeah. Uh, they vowed that this was in their interests as well as that of the government, and so on and so forth. Now, what, what's the security situation for your, these innovative energy transport projects? Well, I think you know, the way that we have to look at these energy projects on how it's impacting people, how, you know, the, you know, my uh, example is that if you have, if uh, you live in a village and you see these transmission lines going over your uh, village and you're still living in kerosene lamps, I don't think you'll have much connection with that transmission line or its presence, it's working, or that somebody cutting that line. But however, if those transmission lines are part of uh, providing electricity to you and also part of uh, a small industrial park or agricultural park or whatever that provides an employment for you or in your uh, village, your relationship and connection becomes quite different. And uh, that's one of the way that we're looking at those projects on, see how it can use the local uh, staff for um, a lot of the physical work in building those, and then on a continual basis how it can really impact. And then you know, use the uh, project TAP or now the TAPI. We are looking at these as part of corridors where we can com uh, cluster utilities. So we can look at uh, uh, corridors, for instance, in the TAPI corridor, not only will have the gas pipeline, but also we have the high voltage 500 kV uh, line that will go from uh, Turkmenistan to Pakistan. We are also looking at the road, railroad, and, uh, and fiber optics, and then Along TAPI, there will be five pumping stations in each one of them requiring over 200 uh, uh, technicians. Uh, collectively, each one of them will be centers of, you know, towns of uh, 1,000 to 2,000 people minimum. So it changes the whole picture that it not only becomes a utility corridor, but it, how it can really become a development corridor. So that's how we're trying to look at some of these uh, uh, projects because at the end of the day, 
no matter how many armies of soldiers and whatever that you have, they cannot protect you know, each one of these utilities. And most of that protection has to come from the communities that they feel that this is part of theirs. One of the other things that we found is, for instance, dams and power. These are the roads people will not care much, maybe. But uh, irrigation dams, electricity, these are the kind of things that people feel is, uh, fiercely fight for if it really has a, a direct impact with their lives. Yes, please. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Qayoumi, and good to see you again in DC. Um, my name is Rohala Osmani. I'm a visiting scholar with John Hopkins High, closely working with Dr. Estar and other colleagues. Um, you uh, uh, discussed the very important four areas that uh, the government of Afghanistan is focusing on growth, extraction, uh, trade, and industry and production. And also, I, I, I have been following on the government of Afghanistan uh, program that uh, were presented to Brussels conference. Mm -hmm. uh, infrastructure development, energy, service delivery, citizen chartered, and all others. Correct. At the same time, you, uh, you, uh, you talked about the reality on the ground, which is capacity challenge of Afghan government yes. to implement all those uh, projects. And you really say that, and the challenge of capacity, I was there, I was given $100 million, for example, to build capacity of civil service in one year. So yeah. I know what you're talking about. But at the same time, uh, I was hoping, when I was looking at the programs at Brussels, that uh, government of Afghanistan might need a human capital uh, a development uh, program. That's the basis for all other programs to implement. And also uh, a mapping of where we are in terms of human capital in Afghanistan and then where we are heading long term. Is there any specific thing in that regard that yes. uh, we should know about? Thank you. Okay, yeah, thank you uh, for the question. You're absolutely right. I mean, the comment that I have uh, stated over and over that Right now, one of the uh, hurdles for our economic growth is uh, uh, being attracting adequate investment and uh, financial capital. But soon, the biggest hurdle is going to be uh, not having adequate uh, human capital to be able to move those projects forward. Uh, one of the, you know, again, as uh, part of the, ha uh, you know, one of the hats that I wear in terms of the, you know, the human capital, it's part of a council that involves a number of key ministries to look at what are the skill sets that we currently have, what are the skill sets that we really need to produce to move forward. In Afghanistan, unfortunately, we have created this um, a false expectation that everybody will go to, uh, uh, to school for the first K through 12, continue on to go to a university, usually get a degree in humanities and social sciences, and somehow government will absorb them, uh, and, uh, and they will get a job. We have a similar problem. No. <laughs> you know, in terms of vocational, you know, and I've been trying to say that, you know, look at the U.S., look at most of the developed countries. At most, you're talking about 30% or so of the you know, individuals getting a four-year college degree. But the biggest problem is the vocational technical group that we don't have any. Uh, what, you know, and, uh, you know, spending 36 years in the U.S. higher education system, the U.S. has failed, you know, badly also in that area. And now many of the, you know, a number of the states in the U.S. are trying to emulate the German system uh, uh, as well. <coughs> Our hope 
in the, if I go back in the halcyon days of Afghanistan, we had a number of uh, vocational technical schools that Germans supported and also uh, the US supported. I went through one of those technical schools that the US supported. Uh, it, was, it was from North Carolina's uh, curriculum at that time. Uh, but we are really trying to look at vocational technicals in two different ways. One, the traditional guild system that we have had throughout, uh, you know, maybe millennia or so, and how we can really bring some elements to really change that tremendously. Uh, we are, uh, this uh, spring, we're, sta we're starting five pilot programs uh, in, the, in that area, both in the city of Kabul and Mazar as a start with the hope that we can uh, replicate that one in a major way in the next few years. But then uh, look at uh, bringing some new, uh, a new transformed vocational technical program, which uh, the current one has been basically defunct. Uh, to give you some statistics on that one, we have about 350, um, 310 vocational technical schools all around, around the country. Uh, most of the students who go to those schools are the ones who failed the entrance exam to go to universities. So their interest is to go back to a four-year university. They go to the, uh, to the program, 97.5% of those students want to go back to a four-year institution. And they go to one of some of these fly-by-night uh, private schools, uh, private universities, get a four-year degree, and unfortunately, there's no jobs for them. Uh, and my comment to, even to the ministers of higher education has been that if, if we do not give people the skill sets to, uh, for a four-year college and they end up in the, uh, you know, uh, in the uh, unemployment line, wouldn't it be easier to just send them to the unemployment line after high school and save all of the money of the four year of college? So we are looking at basically transforming the whole four year, uh, the whole vocational technical uh, programs. Uh, to really uh, establish a strong apprenticeship program for a good number of students from the ninth grade. Uh, so we have some who will go through the general education that will be going through universities, but the large number going to the vocational technical programs. Who is assisting you on that? Uh, it's mostly German. Uh, we're working with the GIZ, the German, uh, uh, German uh, uh, funding entities, uh, BMZ basically. Yeah. And not Swiss, not actually. It's, 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 it's all of these. Uh, there is a uh, kind of consortium of these uh, yeah. seven, six or seven uh, Germanic countries who are uh, who have this practice. It's you know, of course Swiss, uh, Germany, Austria, uh, uh, Holland. Yeah. And then, uh, what about Uzbekistan? They've in your region. They're the only <laughs> ones who've made a really big investment in that in vocational technical Actually, training. Actually, Uzbekistan and as well as uh, India. I think they've made India, some yeah. uh, because India started some of that work from the days with uh, with Switzerland from yeah. in the days of uh, Prime Minister Nero back in the 1950s. Uh, and also, to some extent, Iran had, because during the days of the Shah, they had a close working relationship with Germany in bringing the German uh, vocational technical model. So that's what we really are trying to bring. And also find ways so we can uh, bring women to the vocational technical. Right now, their presence is even lower than, uh, than even men in terms of skills. So the uh, five key areas that we put as a priority is in agriculture. Uh, it's in uh, uh, IT, uh, logistics, uh, healthcare, and construction. 
And I think except for construction or even in this country, there are not that many women who are going to that field. But these other four areas where I think we can see we'll be able to attract a good number of women going through the vocational technical program. I, I must tell you, I, I had a, a uh, lunch a number of years ago with yeah. members of the Chamber of Commerce in Kabul. And uh, there was a woman sitting to the right of me and uh, very nicely dressed and very and, 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 but I noticed that, that there was, her fingernails weren't, there was some dirt under her fingernails. I, so I turned to her and said, what, what business are you in? She looked me straight in the eye and said, cement. <laughs> well, well, we have some women, uh, a good number of women engineers, we have some women contractors, we have, but not enough. Yeah. yeah. You know, if we, uh, you know, multiply that by a factor of 100, then I'll feel much better. Uh, that's what needs to happen. Yes, sir. Hi. Just to follow on the same, uh, Professor, I, Kosh Arha, uh, had a pleasure to meet you before. Good to see you again. Um, I would like you to address the issue of youth, the great asset that Afghanistan has, yes. the great legacy of probably the international commitment over the last 15 years, and the unemployment. And so you talked about, I think, the strategic vision of where you're going with either growing stuff or manufacturing them or trading them or extracting them. You also mentioned about the IT and others. But how do you meet the urgency of trying to find the jobs for 400,000 people that are coming every year into the job market, plus the 7,000, 8,000 refugees coming in, yeah. with the strategic vision in a specific way, in a sure. really specific way, because, and, and it would be good to see what you think has worked in last 13 or 20 years where we have good examples of actually job creation. We talked a lot about it, but it's tough to find and so sustainable. Thank you very much. Oh, one of the programs, as I alluded a little bit about uh, vocational technical, is our traditional guild uh, vocational technical system, basically through, uh, we have over, uh, you know, uh, roughly about a million students who are really part of that program. Uh, yeah. These are people who, are, uh, with zero government support or encouragement or directions or whatever. Uh, this is, you know, the problem that we, you know, in uh, the good thing about that system is that, you know, it's uh, an independent system, no subsidies, and I think people, uh, you know, working as an, uh, you know, uh, as an apprentice making uh, you know, very, very small amount of money. Uh, the problems, that, and uh, the good thing is that 70% of them open their own businesses. Hmm. Uh, so, so, where are some of the problems? The problem is that, you know, to become an, uh, let's say, an uh, auto mechanic or a plumber or whatever, it shouldn't take seven years or five years or six years. It could, should be done, it could be done much shorter. Second, those, uh, those individuals do not get any skills in terms of uh, numeracy and some other, you know, and, uh, and uh, some literacy skills. The third is they do not get exposed to new technologies. And the fourth is we do not give, the, you know, the, anything they learn about how to set their own business or entrepreneurship or whatever is through the School of Hard Knocks. So what we are, what, in these five programs that I said that we're starting as a pilot is to have, uh, students who, from the ninth grade onwards who are part of these systems already. 
bring them in for so many hours a week. And it could be after hours, it could be on weekends. Not create another building or another sort of, use the same buildings for vocational technical or universities or schools or whatever that we currently have. So we won't have to add more cost for that aspect. And give them all of these, these areas that they are deficient. And after, by the time they graduate from the 12th grade, they'll be given a degree as a, as a, uh, as a baccalaureate, uh, a vocational technical baccalaureate, not the general education baccalaureate. With the idea that most of them will, some of them may continue on for the 13th and 14th in the vocational technical, but a good number of them would, not, would have not only worked, but be able to be part of the economy immediately. And there, as an apprentice, they're already part of the economy. So, that's where we want to be, you know, I think on the immediate term, you know, with this five program, our hope is that it could easily uh, grow to a, a much larger numbers in the, in the next few years. We wanted to start small just to make sure that we have, uh, we've really worked uh, out all of the details. There's a similar program that has been started on, uh, uh, on agriculture programs from the 10th grade to be able to bring some, uh, especially in the countryside. So the countryside model is the agricultural one, the urban one is this uh, uh, which really means the people uh, uh, master relationship that hopefully we can bring a change in a relatively short period of time. Dr. Kayumi, when, when you were on that, in that helicopter yeah. uh, and you flew over this now enormous city of Kabul, yeah. uh, uh, well, you, you saw an enormous city that had yes. grown beyond anyone's expectation, like all the other capital cities of Central Asia, by yeah. the way. In fact, in some countries, yeah. the question is whether the capital will swallow the country. And, yeah, and my yeah. question is, with your deep engagement with the modern sectors of the economy, how, how, how's that ha doing in the other major cities? I think in other major cities, the growth has been a little bit more organized than Kabul. Uh, and there are reasons for it. Uh, when I look at Herat or uh, Balho, uh, you know, the, uh, the development has been far more organized. Uh, first of all, those cities did not see the kind of distractions that Kabul had. And then we did not have such a vast number of people uh, moving into Kabul. And right now, more than 70% of the city is, uh, is unplanned. And when you're on an, a, a, in, a, in a helicopter, it really shows unplanned. The other part that I did not see was that, you know, in the days that I was growing up there, they were really, literally, you could see communities. You do not send, get that sense of community. And the other part that really bothers me is that we are developing the city to, you know, rather than becoming, uh, or the melting pot that Kabul was from, you know, we're seeing areas that are becoming a, you know, strong, uh, you know, groups of particular ethnic areas, which is not good for a city. It is, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's a really uh, Karachi problem. Model. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's, you know, that kind of a frozen pot, which is, yeah. uh, uh, which is problem. And then the other part is in terms of basic services. Uh, you know, that has been a problem. Now, one of the things that, you know, we've, we're doing a few things on the, on the urban thing, you know, uh, for, for all of these uh, developments for the last 13, 14 years, uh, you know, some basic things like storm drainage system or uh, water distribution or whatever has not been addressed at all. So we have made some changes this year that I think is an, uh, an interim solution that addresses 80% of the problem. Hopefully we'll see it when the rainy season starts. Uh, 
the other part that we need to address is the depletion of the underground water. We are, we have been losing the water table going down uh, more like about six to eight feet a year. That can, that is dangerous. That could really, I mean, the, the, if, if you have any kind of a settlement of the land, it will topple a good number of buildings. Uh, so, yeah, so these, uh, you know, we need to look at some, uh, and that has gone, you know, that's something that had you know, been going on for the last 12 to 13 years, when, you know, because going back to Kabul of 2001, it was about 400 to 500,000 people, now close to, you know, four and a half million. Uh, it's, a, it's a major shift. So these are some of the basic urban issues that we're really trying to address. So How's, how much energy do you <laughs> see in Kandahar and Herat? And uh, well, right now, uh, in, uh, in, uh, we're talking about in terms of uh, electricity. Economic energy. I think in economic energy, there's a lot in Herat, followed by Mazar. That's why if you look at half of the people, half of the investors, in, uh, or a good size, a number of investors from uh, Nangrahar in these places, are moving to Herat and Mazar because that's where there are more economic environment. And part of that is there is adequate electricity <laughs> versus on the east side. Very interesting. Yeah. Yes, sir. And back. Thanks. And sir, uh, thank you for your time. My name is uh, Vinod Knutharai from the Stimson Center. Yes. And, uh, and I was just wondering, in terms of your portfolio, yeah. how constructive have the roles of uh, India and Pakistan, respectively, uh, have been? Well, I think if uh, you know, uh, India has been a, a great uh, supporter of Afghanistan. They have built a lot of things. And uh, I think on the Pakistan side, that has been uh, very small in terms of those, uh, the, those kind of engagements. I think they have built some uh, couple of schools and uh, some hospital or whatever, but has been uh, very, very small compared to the tremendous uh, support and, uh, and assistance that we have received from India. Yes, please. I'll ask another one if no one is going to. Um, and that's on corruption. Um, yes. You know, you're getting all of this, this $2 billion is going to be coming in and um, I know that one of the major concerns of some of the countries that are um, donating is that it goes to the right places and that um, there are reforms undertaken. Could yes. you talk a little bit further about those reforms okay. that you're planning? Okay. Well, I think one of the things that we've uh, worked uh, with uh, donors now is try to make all of the funding uh, contingent upon results. So basically funding for results so it will not be in the... Uh, prior format. Uh, secondly, I think if you look at some of the changes that has happened in the past year, uh, will lead you to, uh, you know, give you some uh, good indication. I think the National Procurement uh, Authority was a go the first major move uh, to make sure that all major contracts are done in a transparent way. I mean, the president is presiding on that uh, with the CEO on a weekly basis. Uh, I've been a member of that one and those meetings can last two hours or it can last four hours every day, you know, usually starts from 7 p.m. and it goes to 10, 11 p.m. And it, all the major contracts are going through that. Uh, some of the tangible, uh, tangible improvements on that uh, was, uh, first of all, we've seen a, 
the savings of over $208 million only in the, with the Ministry of Defense and uh, a smaller number <coughs> of Ministry of Interior and so on. So I think in the procurement, that has been a major, uh, major one. I think there are shifts that <coughs> and changes that has happened <coughs> uh, with the judges. I mean, the, they have, there has been a replacement of over 200 judges all across the country. Uh, on the military side, the changes of 93 generals that uh, was replaced and also one of the other decisions that was made that all of these cases of these corruption cases especially for would be given to the attorney general's office and not to the executive call and the president's view was that this is not something that the president that executive branch would have anything to do with it and the other decision was to start those uh, cases of allegations of individuals in the current government then, when that is done, then look at anyone in the prior government. Uh, so I think that, you know, and uh, there has been a few high-profile cases in, even in the last two months that that has happened. Uh, I think it's still small compared to what, all of the things uh, of the, given the challenge, but I think there has been enough, uh, you know, uh, moving that has happened. One of the other things that's also going to be done will be on the recruitment side or, uh, uh, the recruitment side has not been as uh, as uh, transparent as it should have been, and uh, there are a lot of allegations of how <clears throat> uh, you know some entities and areas of the government have uh, looked. You know, the bigger emphasis has been where a person has been from and their ethnic background and uh, and, and maybe party affiliation rather than their uh, knowledge and uh, qualification. So this is part of a new uh, uh, movement that the, the president has started and he's going to be residing on that where we very much like a general, uh, <coughs> uh, uh, general accounting office where we will be doing many of these major hirings uh, uh, on a transparent basis all across, the, uh, all across the government. That process should start in the next month or so. So I think these are some of the steps that, uh, that has been taken and uh, hopefully there's going to be much more. Uh, that will come in the next few months. Dr. Kayumi, the, the impression, general impression, and the statistics support it uh, are that Afghanistan remains a very poor country. It's moved up in the rankings over the years, but it remains a poor country. Nonetheless, there are some real fortunes there that in the hands of Afghan citizens, um, uh, some of which money has emigrated in the last last years, and now you have a president who's himself a development economist, you have you in the role of technology and, and energy, you have a number of indications that, that this may be possibly a time to repatriate some money. Uh, is this happening yet, and what do you think is needed to bring that about? Or is it I lost? I, th I don't think it's all lost. I think part of it would be, is, you know, people go and invest in places where they can see a better return and making sure that the risks are lower. I mean, that's, uh, yeah, and uh, I'll just give you some of the statistics uh, just for, for the, uh, you know, Emirate of Dubai. According to government uh, statistics, there is somewhere between 16 to 18 billion dollars of Afghan money invested there. There are over 10, you know, you know of course, a lot of Afghans in Pakistan are refugees, but there are over uh, their investment in Pakistan is worth over $10 billion. So if you look at the rest of the Gulf country, the Emirates, rest of the Gulf countries, uh, Turkey, Uzbekistan, 
Pakistan, yeah, some in India, you're looking at over $50 billion of Afghan you know, diaspora in these countries. Well, I think they're, they're going to come if, are, if their funds are protected. And that's one of the things that we're looking at to identify some instruments for uh, you know, risk mitigated measures so ca there will be capital protection. Of course, in the US, the US citizens who invest in Afghanistan through OPEC and MIGA, there is some protection. But try to buy that one uh, maybe through uh, private, uh, you know, to Lloyds of London or through some other insurance companies. But also, I think of uh, you know the fact that in the last uh, eight months, uh, or six months or so, we have seen about 1.1 billion dollars of investment uh, coming back to Afghanistan, uh, including from Afghans, a big uh, one. A good amount of it from Afghans, actually. Yeah. Part of it has been from from uh, uh, you know uh, foreign citizens, but good amount of it from Afghans is an indication that we will see these. But part of that is the way these projects have been looked at. As po and the uh, High Economic Council in a very open and transparent way, so people will not, you know, will can be assured that uh, these projects are valued by their own merits and not how it can really benefit one person or a group of people. So, I think as we see more of this, uh, you know, we have about 20 small uh, renewable energy projects that are in different stages and. Uh, for each one of them, we have seen a good number of you know, companies that have shown interest in individuals who will be putting money there. We had an energy investment conference in Dubai about a month and a half ago where we had over 50 companies and investors participating. Uh, we had a similar one in Pakistan on the, on the energy. So I think in the next year, our hope is that you see uh, a lot more of that one, not only on the energy side, but also on the railroad and moving of goods. Uh, uh, we see that one as well as uh, uh, several other areas. So I think uh, uh, our hope in this coming year uh, would be uh, a stronger emphasis on investments. Because if I paraphrase the President Ghani, his comment is that no country has moved from poverty to prosperity through grant and aid. It's uh, through investments, uh, domestic and foreign, that we can do. And our hope is that if you're able to, you know, imagine out of that 50 billion, if you're able to attract 10% of it, 20% of it, 25%, you know, just that, not, not looking at- A billion at, here, a billion there. It will even be real money, yes. <laughs> so, so I think that's, that's where it gives us a tremendous uh, potential. And there are a lot, I mean, I've, I've been part of the meetings where the president has met with Afghan diaspora and uh, Saudi and in uh, uh, Emirates and others where they are interested in coming. But they want to see that it's an environment that their capital is protected. They see the right kind of returns, and they see the, uh, and also the, the other part that we're putting an emphasis on the ease of doing business. Uh, that's you know uh, how they can, uh, how the processes uh, for getting res uh, answers, and how we can, and how they can. Uh, we just passed the r uh, rules on public-private uh, partnership. That will also will be quite helpful. Last year we passed the rule on power where for generation, transmission, and distribution. Any uh, private sec uh, private uh, investors can uh, can participate. So I think these are some of the steps that has been taken. 
where it gives me some uh, good sense that hopefully within the next year or two we see more activities. We're, we're very fortunate today to have someone who watched this particular issue like a hawk for many years as Afghanistan's ambassador to the United States and now has watched it, it, it from the business perspective, Ambassador Saeed Jawad. Do you want to comment on this question of, uh, 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 of investment? Today is it? Is it? How's the graph? Up, down, steady? No, I agree with you. Maybe definitely it's it's up. We've seen it the first sign actually. Afghan investors returning from from uh, Afghan investors returning from Dubai. Primary actually, there is also the push that exists now out of Pakistan will not only impact the refugees but also people who have ever been investing there will be moving some of their investments, particularly in areas of uh, food processing and others that are crucial to us, carpet making. This is the area that Afghans have invested in Pakistan. If they move back to Afghanistan to create job immediately, as the, the lady mentioned, the plans for creating job immediately. So the, the trend is positive, but also uh, Afghans are uh, part of the global society. They are watching the elections in here. They are watching the movement, the violence in the region, the development in, 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 in competition in relations that exist in the region. As I mentioned in the, uh, before about the movement of Afghan refugees to, to Europe. Again, we live in a globalized society. People know actually how do they live in Afghanistan and how better life is in Europe. So part of this access to information. So it's not necessarily that they are under extreme pressure but they are looking for better life. And, and a lot of them also were, got used to an, a degree of income in Afghanistan that was unrealistic because of the, of the international funding that existed in Afghanistan. Those kind of salary does not, will not exist, and Afghans have to readjust to that, that uh, uh, an ordinary clerk for, uh, for uh, working for an NGO will not be making $5,000 $5, a month. So we, and that adjustment is sometimes difficult. Therefore, there is a push for looking for better horizons. Thank you. Very interesting. Thank you. Uh, Anyone? Yes, sir. I think there was another comment also. Yes, I see. But over here? I just wanted to follow up on something you said earlier, which was the case of Kabul. Yeah. 4.55. So that's out of 30 million people, that's yeah. about 15% of the population is right. in Kabul. Yes. And if you took the other big cities, we are looking at somewhere between 30 to 50% of this country may very well be urban if you accumulate. So we have this paradox in in sort of Afghanistan. Here, the dominant narrative is always a very rural country. We've got to be agriculture-focused as a rural country. We've got to work on it, all the money we spent after 13 years. And now we are looking at a situation where it'd be nice to know what are sort of the big urbanization, the urban growth, the renewable services, all the rest of that you talked about. Mm. Um, we can get to it indirectly in many ways that you suggested. Uh, I know President himself is very keen with his advisors on looking at different models of this. It would be nice to hear from you as to what are some of the more targeted things, because if you have security, people will gravitate to the cities because of jobs. If you have insecurity, people will gravitate to the city for security. Uh, so any which way, you're, that's where most people are, and that's where the young folks are and the refugees are. So if you address that issue, and if you address primarily in the northern side, as you mentioned, Kabul, Balkh, and Herat, then what are the main economic drivers? How do we address the southern end of things? Thank sure. you very much. Well, very appropriate question. I and mean, uh, that is uh, uh, an issue that not only in Afghanistan, but basically the whole aspect of uh, urbanization globally that uh, they say that by 20, uh, I think it's 2035 uh, or something uh, there about that over 
between 60 to 80 percent of the world population will be living in urban areas, and most of that increase is uh, in the emerging economies or post-conflict countries. I mean, certainly, that's what you know we've suffered also. But all, you know, we're even looking at you know, for instance, cities like Kabul. Ecologically, how much, how you know, what kind of a population can it really sustain? Can it really grow? to be a 7 million population or 8 million. I think it will be disastrous from, an, from all aspects of life, from an environmental point of view, from basic services, from and, you know, elements such as basic as food security. Uh, so, in, uh, so part of what we are hoping is how we can really uh, create other opportunities where people would not move to cities. Uh, you know, going back to the examples that I uh, mentioned about research, uh, you know, settling some of the refugees and and uh, uh, maybe uh, these irrigation dams to be one of these aspects. You know, our hope is that maybe in the next uh, few years, we if we can develop, you know, somewhere between north of ten of these uh, settlements, which will each one of them would be an ecosystem of uh, uh, you know of uh, two hundred to four hundred thousand people. Uh, that might be a way that will bring to lower some of the pressures for people to move to this uh, to big cities. That might be, but uh, but you have to do it in such a way that people's income will be as much as cities, and more than likely, and hopefully higher than cities. I mean, Korea is a good example of it, where they got to a point that the the rural population uh, income was more than the urban income. So those are the kind of things that needs to happen to be able to uh, to be able to curb some of this uh, uh, uncontrolled urban, uh, you know urbanization that I mean, for all of the right reasons that you if you look at for individuals as to why they move uh, to the cities but unless that's really addressed from all aspects it's going to be uh, major you know very problematic from uh, from basic services to crime to uh, energy to water to uh, public health to food security and uh, and uh, from an environmental point of view. So that's why we have to make a, an effort. Right now, I think several of the Afghan cities is part of the, the some of the fastest growing cities in the world. That's right. And that's not a very good yeah, statistic to be on uh, because I wish uh, some services would be growing that way rather than just the population per se. But your, your picture depends a good deal. I mean, they hope depends a good deal on production, manufacturing, and so. export. Yes. I was talking to an Iranian businessman, yeah. actually, and a government official. Yeah. And I asked him about this. He said, you know, everyone thinks that's going to happen. And he said, don't count on it, because we have a big enough domestic market that, that most of our, our, our businesses are quite content to produce for that, and they, and they could care less about exporting and so on. Do you think Afghans are, are, have today, I mean, after all, we, it's nice to talk about a thousand years ago, but to, today, do they have a mentality that will enable them to take advantage of these regional possibilities in the area of trade? I think yes, uh, because, you know, part of that is, uh, you know, going to, you know, the historic factor that you alluded to, but also the you know, the conditions after the Soviet invasion and the fact that so, such a large number of them had to be uprooted. In a way, that way they're far more connected to countries around them than 
those you know communities that had didn't have to go through that one. Yeah. So yes. uh, I think the you know going to you know the uh, you know Ambassador Jawad's comment that they are you know that they are part of the global uh, market and global society, and especially at the regional level, they know where to move their money, and that's why if you look at. The fright or the moving of Afghan money after 2008 from Dubai and some of the other places to, they, to they moved it because I mean it's uh, the the fright money is something that people are very much you know that has become part of the you know the today's uh, environment that they you know they have to deal with. So I think from that point that has been quite. I'm going to ask two more questions together, sir. Yes. trying to extract natural resources, you know, the copper in the eastern part of the country, the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, they just extended the railroad from China, from, I think Nanjing, all the way to Termez, I guess. And uh, Gwadar versus Chabahar, uh, which will be the more important port for uh, Afghan exports? Okay. And go ahead, okay. Chris, I'll Great. ask. Okay. Could you comment a little bit more on the trade and transport initiatives that the current government has underway, uh, specifically in terms of regional connectivity and okay. transit? Uh, when, uh, when I look at sort of China's One Belt, One Road initiative, I see yeah. it going around Afghanistan instead of going through it. What can be done to actually drive that through sure. Afghanistan more? Or other similar okay. initiatives. Uh, well, first of all, yeah, I think both questions, in a way, uh, centers around China to an extent. Uh, yeah, China has been interested in uh, extractive industries, but I think they have been uh, in the, that particular project that you talk about, uh, the copper mine. Uh, you know, we have had a number of issues for that. The major one was uh, that to be a major archaeological site. Uh, you know, Afghanistan has over 10,000 archaeological sites related to Buddhist cultures. You know, because we have been such a rich uh, site of, uh, you know, of Buddhist uh, tradition. Uh, so that was one basic element. And the other part was the drop in the price of uh, copper. And third, it was, uh, you know, the format on, you know, how much pre-processing should be done uh, uh, for, for, that, for the copper. But I think, you know, Chinese have been, uh, their interest has been beyond just on the extract, uh, extractive industries. Uh, they have shown interest in investment in some of the dam uh, and irrigation projects, as well as uh, railroads, uh, roads, uh, and others. Uh, specifically, I think along, you know, the two uh, corridor, uh, Gwadar and Charbahar, uh, I think, uh, and, you know, at least from, uh, I've not been to any of the two, so what I'm telling you is what I know from what I've read that uh, Gwadar is becoming more and more of uh, meeting China's energy need versus Charbahar is to be a much, much, uh, you know, far more wider in terms of portfolio of what it's going to be doing. Uh, I think the key would be in the next few years is to, it's not only how the, uh, these two ports are developed, but how the connectivity of those ports to anywhere else. So <coughs> if, uh, the project that in the, you know that India and Iran are building, let's say the railway connection from that one to Zaranj in Afghanistan and then also up north. So, you know, to be able to use not only for the for the Iran but uh, per se, but mostly for Afghanistan and Central Asia, how that uh, how that moving of goods would really uh, use Charbahar. That's where we'll see the uh, the bigger impact. And also for Gwadar, although we've had discussions with the Pakistanis and building that uh, real connection uh, to uh, Gwadar. Uh, you know, it's still part of our uh, master plan, it's still part of it, but when and how 
that will happen. I think time will tell. But I think I look at these two boards that whichever is going to be the one that will be built first is going to really the one that will get, gain more prominence, uh, which brings us to the uh, question that Chris has in terms of the railroad. Uh, we finished our master plan for the railroad. Uh, you know, again, if you look at where Afghanistan is, you know, uh, we are in an area where the question was basically three different gauges of railroad. The, uh, the Russian gauge, which is basically all of our northern countries, uh, the uh, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, and uh, Turkmenistan, with India having that narrow, uh, and Pakistan having that narrow British gauge. And Afghanistan deciding, you know, the decision was made in Afghanistan to use the international gauge. First of all, I think. Uh, Which is the British gauge in this case? No, no, it's the, no, the uh, British gauge is the narrow gauge. No, this is the, the international standard, uh, standard gauge. The standard gauge, yeah. The standard gauge. Because the OBOR is going to be on uh, standard gauge, and that's one of the reasons that uh, the. Chinese decided to go through Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, then to Afghanistan, and uh, to Iran. <coughs> Excuse me. I, I know there had been three or four different paths for that one. One was uh, one that was being advocated to go through Kyrgyzstan, uh, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and then to Iran. But that be so much of it will be on the British, uh, on the Russian gauge, or uh, going through. Uh, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Afghanistan, Iran, but again, then you go, uh, you'll have the issue of the gauge. But uh, what uh, Tajikistan decided to do that, uh, the gauge uh, going to Tajikistan will also be in a national gauge, um, the standard gauge, knowing that the rest of their railroad system is the Russian gauge. So for Afghanistan, I think the gauge that we're going to be using, it's going to be in a national uh, the standard gauge because most of our you know, uh, the amount of goods that will be transferred, and if I look at, you know, let's say fast forward 15 years from today, uh, the amount of goods from China using that through Iran is going to be such a tremendous amount. You know, right now, if you look at goods going from China to Europe, by ship, it takes somewhere between seven to eight months. By this route, it will take about eight to nine days. So look, I mean, the savings is going to be so uh, tremendous. Uh, and so that's why I think we, you know, in terms of the amount of traffic that will go for that, uh, it, you know, it's going to be tremendously important. And it, we have to, you know, like a typical logistics problem, we have to optimize uh, around the items that you'll have the highest frequency. And that's going to be the one that's going to have the highest frequency. So we see the railroad issue to be so f uh, transformative for Afghanistan because in a way, we lost that opportunity back in the 1880s when the Berlin to Bombay uh, plan was in Afghanistan at that time. The ruler decided that to keep the country together in one piece was not to allow the railroad going through Afghanistan, actually. Of course, the, the, uh, Professor Stark knows more about that one than I could imagine in terms of uh, uh, what, you know, to what extent I think some of the material had actually been stored. And, in borders of Afghanistan with the hope to build the railroad back in 1880s. We lost that opportunity, and again, we have this opportunity to be able to do this and right in, in a way that would really be formative for the next uh, half a century or beyond. Hoping, of course, that the <coughs> oversupply of ships and the extremely low costs of shipping uh, uh, is not a permanent condition. 
exactly. Even then, yes. Yeah. The time, okay. uh, you know, eight days and eight months has such a big difference. It does. That, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's not entirely a matter of competing for the same goods of either. Course, of course not. Certain goods are more appropriate yeah. for rail. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to uh, uh, break here. Unfortunately, we, we don't have more time. But uh, I, I want to end with a, an obvious point, but one which isn't made, especially in this country. Uh, Dr. Kayumi alluded to it in passing, and that is that the rapid, the sudden departure of, of American arms and, and many other organizations from Afghanistan, which occurred very rapidly, uh, left an immense, uh, immense gap in the economy and in the society because so many people had, had adjusted over more than a decade to, to participate in the economy that that presence built. We made zero plans for that transition. I think it's, a, I think personally the, the, the haste in which this was uh, uh, prepared and executed was a, 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 a serious, serious, and, and uh, morally serious mistake. But what is important, I think, today is that Dr. Kayumi was able to speak about this with a couple of sentences and pass on to, to what actually is being done on the positive side and what has been done quite successfully, astonishingly successfully, for all the shortcomings. Um, to accommodate this, this un sudden and un unwelcome shock that occurred. Um, sometimes what isn't said is, is as important as what is said. And I think this is something that Af is very much to the credit, not only of Afghanistan as a whole, but of the, of the government and handling it. So I want to thank you very thank much. You. And we all you. send you thank off to Kabul with, with our warm best wishes in, in this thank important you. area you're working in. Well, thank you very much. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks.